Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings from Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. We are now vaguely a few weeks out, that's vague enough, isn't it, from the US election. The leading candidates are Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, for those of you who have been living in a bomb shelter. Today, for context, is the day of the last debate. To join me to give his thoughts on how Trump and Clinton could approach Asia and what they've been saying in their campaign so far is Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia and uh, general all-around guy who knows everything about politics around here. Thanks for joining me today, Nick. Thanks, Matt. A little, a little kind. Yeah, laying it on just a bit too thick. A little. It's probably fair enough to start this by giving a bit of a crystal ball gazing. Are, are you willing to, to put your money on who you think will win the election at this point? Yes, I will put very, very, very large sums of money on Hillary Clinton winning win very significantly. She'll win the popular vote by between six and eight percentage points. It could be a little more, just depends on what happens tonight um, in terms of the the third debate, in which I think Trump is likely to kind of have a thermonuclear meltdown of epic proportions. Mm. But I think she's going to win the popular vote. She'll win the electoral college vote. She'll win every single one of the states that Obama won last time around. Plus, I think she'll probably pick up a couple of extras. Um, there's a good chance she could win Utah, which hasn't gone Democrat since anyone can remember. Very conservative state, largely Mormon population. And she could well pick up real outliers like South Carolina, which has got a very high African-American population, which absolutely loathes Trump. So he's in for a loss of pretty epic proportions. But I think it'll be the biggest presidential loss since McGovern in 72. It now seems that he realises this and is trying to come up with reasons as to why he's going to lose. Yeah, there's a great phrase. Um, Jacob Weisberg from Slate came up with this. He's got anticipatory sour grapes. Mm. Let's uh, talk about uh, how they've been approaching Asia in this election. And uh, we'll talk about a few security issues first. Trump has, has long said that the US is done protecting other countries and he hasn't just singled out Asia here. But he has given particular note to uh, the situation in Japan. That kind of talk has made Asian states very nervous or cautiously optimistic, as the case may be. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. But Clinton said she's going to honour security commitments and made note of Asia in her first debate when talking about that kind of situation. What's Asia taking from all of this? Yeah, so Trump is often described as having sort of no worldview or no foreign policy sort of outlook and making things up as he goes along. And I think that's true in a a few areas, but he's actually got form on being critical about America's alliance commitments and about what he perceives or what many perceive to be free riding by allies around the world. That's to say countries in which the US provides the overwhelming defense and security guarantee, Mm. which they don't have to pay for themselves or don't pay that much for. And it goes back to the 80s where Trump was denouncing the Japanese free ride on American alliance commitments. So he's got track record on this. And I think allies around the region, but particularly in Asia, see in Trump a representation of an underlying sentiment that has some real support, which is why should America continue to pay for the defense and security of these countries that are a long way from from America and and at first glance appear to be not kind of core business to American security. Mm. So if you're in South Korea or Japan, they're the two that are kind of at the front line, if you like, in the sense that if the US was to pull back from the region in in a Trumpian manner, this would be of greatest consequence to them. And I think Trump has even said, you know, if 
when asked, I think it was by Washington Post editorial board, if you were to do that, those countries are likely to go nuclear. It's like, great, that's fine. South Korea, great, nuclear Japan, that's fine. And that's for a lot of people who watch the region and for a lot of people in the region, this is pretty disconcerting, mm. uh, a big nuclear breakout where you've got a rapid expansion of the number of nuclear countries in the region, all of which you know, don't get along with each other very well. Clinton, on the other hand, has taken his talk about basically not honouring alliance commitments and tried to play it to her advantage. She's very much out of the playbook of Washington foreign policy. We've been doing this for a long period of time. We think it works. We think it's in our interest. We think it's in everyone's best interest that America's out there in the region, in Asia, in Europe, in the Middle East, keeping the peace, you know, (laughs) use that term loosely at the moment, and want to continue to do that because they think that this is the best way of ensuring that you don't get things like a nuclear breakout in Northeast Asia, you don't get North Korea feeling particularly adventurous, and you don't get China being uh, more assertive than it's already been. The problem is, in the face of the status quo, so Clinton says we'll continue to do what's happened in the past, well, look at what's happened in Asia in the past eight years. You've seen a China that's become much more assertive about its rights, particularly in the South China Sea, but not only there. And for some, there's not a lot of comfort to be gained from a Clinton who says, we'll basically continue to do what we've been doing in the past, because that means a China that feels more emboldened because the US is seen as a country that's not as willing to use force as it has in the past. So yeah, yeah. Both sides of this coin present for countries in Asia and other allied partners in Europe and elsewhere some points of real concern. Well, China's becoming more adventurous in the South China Seas and would probably welcome less US intervention in that area. So that's a vote for Trump from them, maybe, on that issue. We talked about Trump particularly in China uh, a few months ago. Yeah. I think there's a real case of be careful what you wish for in Beijing with a Trump or a Trump-esque America. (laughs) Um, So let's imagine you had someone who's like Trump, that's to say an anti-establishment, anti-kind of status quo figure, but one who's more politically disciplined. Mm. That person could easily have won this election because clearly an election that a change candidate was there for the taking and Hillary Clinton was, you know, if there's a change candidate, she's the dictionary definition of the opposite of that Mm. and widely disliked to boot. But if you've got someone who, who can represent that worldview that Trump's got, but in a politically credible and effective manner, then if you're China, there's kind of on the one hand, great, this will strengthen our hands. You'll mm. see an America that's less present, that's less forceful, that's less in our way, if you like. But it then means all of a sudden a whole bunch of issues come to the surface, which you've been happily avoiding for a long period of time, either because you can say America's keeping us down, you can blame others for for where you're at, or you have to start doing things and paying for things that America's been paying for. So China depends really for its economic well-being on the free flow of energy, commodity goods going into the country and its commercial products going out of the country. Yeah. And the open sea lanes have been taken for granted by everyone in the region for decades. And they've been kept open and safe for commercial shipping and everything else for that matter by the US Navy. If the US Navy's gone, again, this is a big if, but if the US Navy's gone, then all of a sudden the countries in the region are going to have to try to do that themselves. And if it's a region in which there's growing rivalry, growing military expenditure, nationalism and discontent, then that's a recipe for firstly difficult times, more expensive for those countries and greater friction and, and contestation. So there are certainly views that kind of say, you know, we probably we don't want America to be gone altogether. We like a, a weaker America, we like a less emboldened America, but we don't want an America that's 
behind Hawaii yeah. just yet. Maybe yeah. in 20 years' time, but not just yet. It's a hard balance to get, though, that. Um, how about Japan, which under the leadership of Shinzo Abe has becoming a bit more emboldened and militant? There's a desire there to build more of a military capacity and have more of a role. So Trump or Clinton, when it comes to those security kind of thoughts? Yeah, again, there's sort of mixed views. It could be a very helpful set of circumstances if you're Abe to have in America that's saying, forget it, you pay for it yourself. Mm. There's certainly a sense, a very real sense behind the Abe government's desire to get Japan's military and defense capabilities up to a level where you might expect them to be as the world's third largest economy uh, and a country that's dependent, like China, on you know energy flows and, and commodity flows into its economy. Not having an America there doing all this stuff for you means you're going to have to do it yourself. And all of those political constraints in the past could easily melt away in a regional environment where the US is sitting back behind um, the Hawaiian Islands mm. and Japan is you know, left very vulnerable. It could be quite a convenient set of circumstances, but it would be very worrying for Japan because my sense is that the domestic political opposition to what Abe would like Japan to do is still pretty strong. Even if you didn't have an America, I'm not sure it would necessarily move enough of the domestic population behind it. Yeah, again, in the world of hypotheticals, it all depend on how quickly the US would shift its disposition. So would it all of a sudden just pack its bags and go one cold December morning? Or would it generally scale down over a long period of time, which you've got to think is probably be the, the latter. But, you know, you can never tell. But I, I think more than anything, all of this debate in the American election, and particularly the fact that Trump, who is just plainly completely ill-equipped for the office, a demagogue, a conspiracy theory you know, narcissist, all of you know, all the stuff we now know about him, and he's still polling nearly forty percent. You know, if you're a security partner in the United States, you need to depend on this country for your welfare and well-being. That's a worrying sign. And and all alliances, you know, all countries that are involved in alliances with senior partners. So you're a smaller country, and you have a deal with a bigger country to help you out. There's always that fear in the back of your mind about whether that guarantee that the big country's given you is credible. Are they actually going to come to your rescue? If that bad day comes when the Chinese roll up on the shore or whatever the imaginary circumstance might be. And this is just going to escalate that problem that's there anyway, even in the best of circumstances. Would the United States treat a nuclear attack on um, Osaka or Kyoto in the same way it would treat a nuclear attack on San Francisco or Chicago? Mm. If you're sitting in Japan, you can see why you think they might not. Under United States ruled by a Trump or a Trump-esque figure, that doubt goes through the roof. In the first debate, Clinton made reference to standing up to the bullies, which uh, kind of a veiled reference to, well, in, insert world power here, but probably China and Russia. And uh, she's got quite a reputation uh, after a long life in politics for the work that she's done. And Trump has made direct reference to China raping the US, which was a very powerful loaded line. Mm. So w- which one do you think is going to have the, the best reputation for getting things done or do you think that both of them will have bad reputations and it's only going to to lead to bad things when dealing with Asian states? Well, I think whoever wins, and I think, like I said, I think it's almost certainly going to be Hillary Clinton. So let's assume we have a Clinton presidency. She's going to find domestic politics really, really, really hard. I think one of the legacy of the election will be that uh, Republicans in the Congress, both in the reps, House of Reps and in the Senate, will see her election as kind of she doesn't have a mandate. I mean, they barely see Obama having a mandate, and this mm. guy won two landslide elections. 
in open normal circumstances against two credible Republicans that had a united party behind them. The Republicans will sit there and go, Trump isn't one of us. It's a primary vote. It's not the party. The primary voters are responsible. They'll devolve themselves of responsibility for Trump and see Hillary as the kind of, you know, she won by default. You know, that Homer Simpson, there's the two greatest words in the English language, default. Mm. That's what they'll see her as, the mm. person who got there because she just got lucky she came up against Trump. On that basic front, they're probably right <laughs> in the sense that I think almost any other Republican probably would have won this. But it'll mean that her domestic politics will be really difficult. And the one place where she'll have freedom to move and to sort of make her presidency, if you like, will be in foreign policy. So my sense is that the domestic circumstances will give her a lot of leeway internationally and she'll spend a lot of her time there. And also, you know, she spent four years as Secretary of State and generally regarded as a very effective Secretary of State. So she's now in the big chair and she'll have to come up with the vision as well as do the execution. I'm not saying she can't do it. It's just those are the issues people raise about her time as Secretary of State. So I think it is likely that she's going to be a bit more muscular towards Russia and China, not only because she's implied that she has and she's kind of got to carry through on that, but I think one of the defining features of Obama's time in presidency has been doubts about the utility or the efficacy of military force. Mm. It's not just a hesitancy to use it because of, you know, this was a country that was tired of war in 2008 after Iraq and Afghanistan, although that was true, and that politically he would have found that difficult lever to pull. But I think he also feels that it's on its own American power as a pretty blunt and not particularly useful instrument. I don't think Clinton feels like that. I think Clinton comes much more from that mainstream foreign policy kind of outlook which sees American force as an important part of the arsenal, so to speak. You know, that it's you, you've got diplomacy, you've got development, you've got aid, but at the end of the day, sometimes you have to wheel out the US Navy or the 88th Airborne to get things done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that she will have a stiffer backbone. And, you know, and if you were to rewind the clock and say, if you had a President Clinton, because don't forget she ran in 08 and could well have won that primary and then beaten McCain in 2008. If she had been in office and the Chinese that island building activity in the South China Sea, the American response would have been much more robust, much, yeah. much more robust. So when she says she's going to stand up to the bullies, she means the Russians and the Chinese, and I think she means what she says. The problem will be what comes from that. You know, does this get the bullies to back down, a la the schoolyard, all a bully needs is someone to stand up to them, or is it going to produce escalation? Is this going to produce not stability, but a response back, a pushback by the Russians or a pushback by the Chinese? Mm. Um, because I think the calculation that the Chinese have recently made about the South China Sea and the East China Sea, they look at it and go, is America going to get involved in a shooting war with us over these rocks and islands a long way from home? They think at the moment, no. Under Clinton, I think that calculation will shift, probably ultimately fall back on a, are they going to get involved in a shooting war? over some shoals off the Philippines with us, the world's second largest military, the world's second largest economy, and their most important economic partner? Probably not. But I think they're going to make Asia a lot more tense, as well as the Middle East, as well as Europe. Lastly, I'd like to turn to uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which both the candidates have made talking points. Trump is very anti it, but at the same time, I don't think he entirely understands what he's talking about. And Clinton, while initially saying that, you know, she's supporting it, America needs it, is now very lukewarm and kind of hedging her bets and giving herself an out if she needs it. Whereas you've got countries, uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up Japan again, where Shinzo Abe's made this kind of a cornerstone of, of getting this kind of partnership done. So 
I get the impression that it's the kind of thing that neither candidates terribly want at the moment, and that as a result, it could just get lost in the post-election wash. Yeah, the TPP became, belatedly, the sort of economic leg of the American rebalance to Asia. It's very complex, and it's not surprising Trump doesn't get it. A lot of people who look at this stuff closely don't get it. But from Trump's point of view, it's a bad trade deal, capital B, capital T, capital D, you know, and he's against all trade deals because they're bad. Clinton's got a real problem with the TPP because when she was Secretary of State, her words were, this is the gold standard for trade agreements. This is the best thing. This is all part of the the American vision for the region. After she'd left office, Obama said, we need to get this done because it ensures that we, the Americans, write the rules for trade in the region and not China. And he used those terms explicitly. Mm. The problem, of course, is that Obama's very unlikely to be able to get it through Congress. He hasn't been able to get it through yet. It's very unusual for these things to occur in the lame duck period. That's the period after the presidential election before the 21st of January when the next president's sworn in. Uh, And Clinton, who is on the record as saying it's a great deal, has then had to walk it back essentially to court the Bernie Sanders voters who, like Trump, have this great deal of uncertainty and dislike, not just uncertainty, dislike of Mm. trade agreements, which they see as accelerating or contributing to this sort of deindustrialization of America and loss of jobs and so on and so forth. The thinking that I've heard about the TPP, and this is you know, this is probably about the best case scenario from a Hillary Clinton point of view, is that when she comes to office, she'll say, I'm going to revisit the TPP and we'll somehow find a way of presenting it as, ah, we fixed it. I liked the idea when we were negotiating it when I was Secretary of State. It was finalized when I wasn't Secretary of State. I've now come in as president and I said, yes, there's problems with it. And I've come in and we've fixed the problems and then we'll pass it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's likely to happen because it's such a complex deal that revisiting those commitments will mean getting all the other countries, the 11 other countries who've signed up to it, to agree to a revised set of terms. And that's going to be hard. There are a lot of countries that have a stake in this, though, and a lot that want this to go through and need this to go mm-hmm. through for their own economy and for their own reasons. So... What's the favoured outcome around Asian states? The countries have all signed on are very keen for it to get ratified. But without the US, it's deeply imperfect because it's the biggest consumer market in the world. And for many countries, uh, the US participation fundamentally changed this from being a kind of technical thing at the margins to a, a big opportunity. Probably more importantly, though, is if, if the US can't get a TPP of the kind that it wants through its own Congress, it's a really visible sign of the international consequences of domestic political paralysis. And that, more than anything, is probably the lesson of the past 12 or 18 months of American politics, which mm. which is what happens in the US really matters to the region, really matters to the world. But American politics is in a really bad place. All right. Thanks for your time today, Nick. I hope you have an enjoyable election and uh, all hail either Trump or Clinton in a couple of weeks' time. All hail Hillary Clinton. <laughs> You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on both iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave us a review there because reviews help other people find the podcast and therefore make us happy. If you want to follow Nick Bisley on Twitter, he is at Nick Bisley. I am on Twitter as well. I am at Nightlight Guy. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.